Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk of Radio. And so, uh, there it is. Just when you thought it was all getting a bit depressing, the weather, the restrictions, the shuffling around the arrows on the floors in the supermarkets and the other shops, and the sitting outside in the cold, we finally actually have some light at the end of the tunnel. Although, looking out the window, uh, it's not very light at all out there today. Opening up the hospitality business and unlocking the doors to cinemas and theatres is happening on Monday. Now we hear that masks are heading for the chop too, as well as being banished from classrooms and school corridors. We're told that come June the 21st, they won't be required anymore in shops and offices. Hallelujah, is what I say. I'm getting so fed up wearing them, I'm hoping public transport bans them as well. Of course, if you feel the need to keep one on, be my guest. I'm not one of those people that forces other people to do what I want them to do or to do what I tell them to do. But if it's safe for children to mingle in school without them, if you don't need to wear them in the shops, then why are we going to wear them anywhere, would be my question. We'll be seeking an expert opinion or two, because there are some people who still think, oh my God. If you're not wearing a mask, you're going to kill someone. Well, I really think that that is hardly likely to be the case, because if it was the case, they wouldn't be telling children that they don't have to wear them. Quite frankly, I think the mask debate is more or less over, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. It's great to be right again. Sorry to apologise for that. Uh, coming up first this morning, though, we're talking to a doctor, a GP no less, Dr Irfan Malik. He practises in Nottingham and he is as annoyed as everyone else is that doctors are not seeing enough patients face to face. Yesterday we spoke to Alison Pearson from the Daily Telegraph. She's got a campaign going, as have we, to get the GP surgeries reopened, right? Despite the fact that the NHS this morning has told them that they should really triage people on video and over the telephone shouldn't bring them into the surgery unless it's absolutely necessary. All that, I'm afraid, is the wrong advice. The NHS is wrong on this. 
patients are right and the patients should always be right. Our message to them is get back to working properly. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be talking to lawyer and author Helen Dale about the free speech law and the new online privacy bill, which seems to be operating against it. Plus, she'll have something to say about voter ID as well. We're also joined by LaDonna Harvey from the US of A with the latest from the White House on the conflicts in the Middle East. Joe Biden seems to have gone all soft. He says he hopes it will all be over soon. Well, that's great leadership, that, isn't it, from the leader of the free world. He says Israel have got every right to defend themselves, which they have. But it's not exactly interventionist, is it, for heaven's sake? He's also, uh, we'll also find out why Ellen DeGeneres has canned her TV show after it was revealed that rather than the rather sort of warm and fluffy image she puts out there, she's more frightening than anyone that's ever worked in television to the people that work for her. Bill Burrows is here as well with his favourite documentary picks. And because it's Thursday, award-winning wine writer Helena Nicklin joins us uh, with a selection of reds to cheer us all up in the Thursday Club. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, it is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, as those of you who listen to this show on a regular basis know, uh, we've been taking many calls over the course of the last few weeks and also many, many messages from all of you out there who are having difficulty seeing your GP. Now, some of you have got real problems and need to be seen by a GP, despite the fact you haven't been able to see one for the best part of a year. Many of you are saying to me as well that your GP surgeries are working fine and actually you've got nothing but good things to say about them. That's great as well. But we're going to talk now to Dr. Irfan Malik, who's a GP in Nottingham, because he likes the idea of seeing patients, but it's not always possible to do just what you like. And this very morning, the NHS has given out instructions to GPs to basically say to them, don't bring people into the surgery if you can avoid it, which seems to me to be a bit counterintuitive. Dr. Irfan, a very good morning to you. Morning, morning, Mike. Morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, it seems to me that there's a bit of a mixed picture out there, um, Dr. Malik. I'm not sure what it's like where you are, but certainly some people are reporting that their surgeries are open as normal, everything's fine. Other people saying they literally can't even get a hold of a doctor. They can't get past the receptionist. They get on the phone and they get told that, you know, they have to self-medicate, uh, they have to self-kind of uh, uh, even examine uh, and then report back. So, so what's the picture? Uh, absolutely. So there seems to be uh, a great uh, variability uh, across the country in patient access to GPs. Um, I can only represent uh, myself and my practice, Elder Surgery in Sherwood in Nottingham. Um, and we've been open throughout the pandemic. Our front doors have been open, no locks, no intercoms. Um, and we've seen patients face to face right from the beginning. Um, and increasingly now um, the COVID pandemic is, is, is reducing in numbers. Um, so I can say that, uh, you know, we've tried to offer the best access to our patients possible. But I know that that's not the picture across the board. Uh, but I couldn't really speak on behalf of, of, of other GPs. No, of course. But you will have seen, I assume, this morning, the advice coming from the NHS, which is basically to tell doctors that they should really be um, sort of triaging patients, if you like, uh, outside of the surgery, so that either on the telephone or by video conference, rather than actually inviting them in, which a lot of people, I think, will find rather bizarre. Absolutely. So last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we were encouraged to go to a system of total triage. Mm. Um, so patients rang up, they were booked in for phone calls with doctors, nurses, um, and we um, you know, managed uh, patients, some patients on the phone and some selectively we brought down to a face-to-face because that was the need at that time because the message from the government was to stay at home, protect the NH- NHS. 
Um, and that worked during those difficult periods and the lockdown, you know, we, we got on top uh, of the cases of COVID. Um, but now, as the COVID numbers are reducing, I personally w wish to see my patients face to face because I have many elderly frail patients. Um, and now we're getting more of a backlog from the last year. I personally find it better to assess my patients face to face. Um, and we're finding an increasing number of cancers and other medical conditions that people have sat on for a, for a, for a while. Mm. Um, and I find it much better to get to the bottom of problems and sort people's problems out with one face-to-face -face consultation rather than four or five different phone calls with different doctors. Yes, of course. And for a lot of elderly people, I think, as well, Dr. Irfan, it's a kind of it's, it's a comfort to go and see a doctor because there might be other things that you see or that you notice. It might be that they need somebody to talk to about something because they may live in isolation. They might not have seen anyone for a very long time. And I think the whole idea of going to see your local doctor is in many ways a, a kind of a necessity for some people. Absolutely. So I've been a GP for 23 years. I've known my patients for that long. So simply by them walking through into my room, I can tell on simple observation whether somebody's lost weight, mm. whether they're anemic, whether they're not quite right. And a phone call, certainly they can continue. There is a role. Some conditions can be managed uh, um, quite simply on the phone. But people who find English difficult, um, uh, language problems, mental health, learning difficulties, you have to be quite articulate to have a conversation with your GP on the phone very yeah. quickly, you know, in five, 10 minutes. So there's a whole population out there that are struggling to access on the phone. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be a mixture. We need to have a mixture of face-to-face -face and phone consultations. But the headlines, same as you that I'm reading, face-to-face -face appointments should be discouraged, say the NHS guidance in the Daily Telegraph today. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can't agree with that. Face-to-face -face has a very, very important role in the core of general practice. Um, and I would like to maintain that as much as possible. Of course. And why do you think this has been uh, released as NHS guidance? Because if you as a doctor think that it's wrong, uh, what are they doing? Uh, I, I don't disagree with it totally. I think there's a place for mix and match. Uh, but what we what we have is a great shortage of GPs under resourced, um, and maybe the powers that be are looking at different models of running primary care with less GPs. So getting more productivity out of the remaining staff uh, instead of pushing more funds into general practice mm -hmm. and encouraging younger doctors to come into into primary care um, and and to help help supporters. But can you actually see more patients remotely than you can in person? Because, I mean, you know, I haven't been to the doctor, thankfully, for a very long time. But generally speaking, you know, you're getting through quite a lot of patients in any given day. You know, if, if you have uh, more than about five minutes or so for each patient, that's that's doing quite well. Um, I would imagine doing it on the phone or by some kind of Zoom call uh, isn't necessarily any quicker, is it? Uh, in my experience, my phone consultations and Zoom consultations are slightly shorter. Uh. Uh, and when I see patients face to face, it takes at least 10 minutes and sometimes longer. Because when patients come, uh, we we observe different things or they wish to talk about something different. So yeah. we go off topic a little bit. So it can take a little bit longer. Whereas uh, on the phone call, it can be focused. Um, and I, I find I can get through more phone calls than face to face. But still, you know, then there needs to be a, a good access to phone calls and also face to face. If a patient 
feels they need a face-to-face appointment to see their GP, we should be in a position of offering that. Yes. And what is your uh, understanding of why there's a shortage of, of GPs? I know that we were supposed to be hiring a load more. Uh, I know a lot of a lot of GPs have retired. They found it a little bit overbearing to have to run it as a business rather than just being a doctor. Um, what's your understanding of why we have, have not enough GPs? Over the last 30 years since I started as a young doctor in general practice, the job has become very intense, a lot more difficult, a lot more demands on our time. Um, and many GPs are burning out as well. Mm. Um, many are retiring early due to ill health, mental health pressures. And add on to that the year of, of pandemic that we've had. Um, it has, you know, it's been very, very difficult for primary care teams. We've also helped out in vaccination clinics uh, in different centers and in practices as well. So the job is actually very, very difficult to do um, longer term. But I think it can be managed with increased funding, increased resources, um, and helping uh, you know primary care practitioners, GPs, nurses, um, you know, to to keep going and a big drive for recruitment. I love I love being a GP, and uh, you know I come to work every day and I'm still bouncing in. So I'm very passionate about about being a GP. Well, I'm very glad to hear it, uh, Dr. Malik. How about this? A question from Anne has come in on, on the text. It says, what about patient confidentiality? Not everyone can call privately at home or at work, which is quite a good question, really, because if you have got, you know, something you don't really want anyone else to know about and you have got somebody in your house or you're having to make a phone call from work, you may feel a bit constricted. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and because we can't always give a certain time when we're going to ring back, that person might be at work or in an office. They might have to get to a private place. Uh, but we always you know, ensure that we respect a, a patient's confidentiality with, with phone calls. Yes, quite. And as far as the um, uh, the new kind of methodology is concerned of, of mixing and matching, as you say, the, uh, the Zoom calls, the phone calls and the in-person visits, it's nothing to do with COVID then as far as you're concerned? Not at the moment and going forward. I think we drastically had to change to a total triage system at the beginning of the COVID pandemic Mm. because there was a need to do it then. But what I find now, there are pressures from higher up for us to carry on doing a total triage system. And I'm not entirely happy with that or comfortable with that. And neither are my patients. No, because a lot of people that I've spoken to have have said that they're not happy with the e-consult system uh, which seems to be something that people are directed to quite a bit by surgeries where they go online and they try and fill out a form which for a lot of people uh, it sounds easy but it's not really it, exactly and it's going back to my point of vulnerable patients difficulty with english mental health learning difficulties elderly frail you know how are these people going to fill out these e-consults mm. And and the practices that have gone into this wholeheartedly have now become overwhelmed uh, and are having to push back on that and stop using it out of hours and at weekends because they can't cope. But it's the wrong type of patients who are accessing that e-consult, only the articulate patients who can access it, rather than, you know, I'm, I'm here for all of the patients, the vulnerable ones, the elderly, the frail. So it's a selective type of patient who can who can run the e-consult. Yeah. And also, what happens when somebody fills out one of those forms? Where does it actually go and who looks at it first? 
Fortunately, we haven't taken that on in our practice. And, you know, I want to resist that because I don't think it's the way forward. Mm. But the practices that are doing it, um, so the form comes to an email and the practices will have to, you know, read that and prioritize uh, whatever that clinical condition is or whatever the question is. Right. It's endless. It could be absolutely anything they could be asking. About. Right. Well, that's right. I mean, I had a, um, a letter that was sent into the Daily Telegraph, funnily enough, and I was reading it out yesterday to Alison Pearson. It's a 16-page letter which this particular uh, practice sent out to all of its constitu- uh, all of its uh, patients, rather. Um, and, and in the midst of it all was a big sit- section on kind of how uh, the process of going to your doctor was a dual process, uh, and the onus was also on the patient not to waste their time effectively, saying, well, you know, uh, you should make sure you don't get in touch with us unless it's something serious. And surely the whole point of calling the doctor is you don't know how serious it is until you've spoken to a doctor. It, exactly. And I read the summary of that practice uh, report as well. Uh, we, we shouldn't be in a position of blaming patients. We are here for the patients mm. and the public. And, you know, they don't know if a problem is urgent or routine or, or they can't always triage themselves. But it's not it's not the GP's fault either. It's the system. It's the e-consult that has, you know, had this overwhelming influence on practices. And now we're getting the surge. We, you know, we're getting a, a huge surge of cancers and medical conditions. So the non-COVID consequences of lockdown. Not that I'm against lockdown or or that, but it, it's had a consequence that we've got a whole backlog now, both in the hospitals and in primary care yes. that we now have to face. Um, and, you know, I've had to plan our practice, how we're going to do that, for example, by employing a GP locum so that we've got extra hands in our practice to manage that demand. But that's very expensive. I saw some somebody yesterday suggesting that that can be as much as about uh, 700 to a £1,000 a day to get a locum in. It, it is very expensive, but if it helps GPs from burning out and if it increases patient accessibility, then, you know, I'd be willing to, to resource that. Right. But that would come out of your own pocket, would it? Yeah. So that's a very big expense. And I mean, I wonder if there is a, a better solution to this. If, if, if shortages of doctors is the problem, um, you know, um, could there not be something cheaper to do than that? Um, well, there have been different models, you know, nurse practitioners, extra type of, uh, of um, you know, medically related staff that have been uh, attached to practices. But what I find personally that, it, you know, you, you need qualified GPs or practice nurses to help with the, with the patients. And they're the ones who know the patients the best. The government keeps on promising that we're going to get 5,000 extra GPs. And actually, I think the overall numbers have actually dropped. Hmm. Uh, and it takes 10 years plus to produce GPs. Uh, you, you can't pluck them out of thin air. So That's right, yeah. We're in, a, we're in a difficult situation. And the GPs and primary care are getting a lot of negative press at, at the moment as well. And that can make it difficult for our teams as well. Hmm. Um, so we, we need uh, this looking at, at a higher government level to, to, to number one, uh, help with patient access so that they, they get what they need. And also to help primary care teams so that we can cope better on the front line. And our staff are, you know, battle-worn and hammered this year. It's been such a tough year. And and me personally, you know, I'm thankful and blessed that, number one, I haven't had COVID. Uh, and that I've survived on a, on a personal level. Yeah. So we've a huge amount of tension this year. Well, it's been a very tough year for people like yourself, Irfan, who have been working throughout. But it hasn't been a tough year for people who haven't been actually going into their own surgery to practice what they're supposed to be doing. If they're just working from home, um, I would say, I would suggest to you, it hasn't been a tough year for them. 
A absolutely. But at the same time, you know, I've turned up to work every day and I've been there for our patients uh, and provided the best ser service under the under the circumstances. Mm. Uh, but there's a there's a balance, you know, uh, the patient demand and patient access ver versus how much our primary care teams can cope with. Um, so this needs looking at, at a higher government yeah. department of health level to to to, to sort this mismatch out because I think there's a miscommunication. Uh, patients uh, are assuming that the pre-pandemic face-to-face appointment direct booking will come back, but in many practices it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So there's a mismatch in what patients expect and what GPs are yes. providing. And is it the case that many people are going into medical training, but they're not emerging at the other end as GPs? They're going into some other area? Uh, uh, yes, you know, into other, uh, you know, hospital specialties or not doing medicine. It is a very tough job and burnout is very common. Mm. And there's a lot of mental health strain on, on young doctors as, as well. It's, it's a difficult job. I've just seen, as we're speaking, a breaking news story saying the number of people waiting for hospital treatment in England is the highest since records began. So it's a big mountain to climb. And it sounds to me, um, Dr. Rafan, that the government needs to act on this sooner rather than later. Yes, not a lot of people are talking about this, but there's millions going to be waiting more than a well, year. We're, talk we're talking about it a lot here at Talk Radio because I think it's a massive story. Brilliant, because people are going to be waiting more than a year to see a doctor in outpatients clinic yeah. and then waiting even longer for having operations done. Mm. And uh, and I'm having, you know, 10, 12 patients a day that I'm having to chase appointments in hospitals for. So I right. can't really influence that. That's a, that's a hospital issue. Yes. But, you know, we're caught in the middle. There's only so much we can do in primary care. Mm. The rest of it, I need a, a surgeon or a hospital doctor, somebody who's going to help that uh, so, so it's a double whammy for patients for difficult access to GPs, and then you, you've got a backlog, a bottleneck at hospital as well. I don't know what the answer is. No. So, when you're referring people to specialists at the moment, are you rather pessimistic about how soon they're going to be seen? Absolutely. And I'm warning people that it could take months and months and over wow. a year. Mm. And that's what it was like in the 90s when I started off in general practice. There were very, very long waits. For example, for knee replacements and hip replacements. Um, and I think, uh, you, you know, there, there are very dark times to come. And this is going to take years and years to sort out. Mm. And finally, uh, Dr. Rufan, a story today in the, one of the papers saying that um, mask wearing may become uh, not necessary or not uh, uh, um, insisted upon uh, come June the 21st, certainly not uh, in shops, certainly not in offices. Would you endorse that in GP surgeries or will you be likely to carry on using them? Again, on a personal level, I I will be wearing masks. Um, and I think during what I've learned over the last year with contact with COVID positive uh, patients is that the mask uh, has saved us. Um, and until the COVID levels are very, very low, I think personally, I will still be wearing a mask and encouraging other people to wear a mask as well. Okay. But of course, a lot of people that died, uh, died in hospital because they got COVID in hospital. Presumably, where they were wearing masks. There are horror stories, you know, uh, patients going in with temperatures, being put on uh, on COVID wards, and then catching COVID from there. Um, and also the the COVID patients being discharged to nursing homes and care yeah. homes. And outbreaks. Happen yeah, but what there. I'm saying is, wouldn't they have been yeah. wearing masks in those hospitals? Yes, but you know, it it doesn't reduce your risk to zero percent, but it helps. 
Okay. Dr. Irfan Malik, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. I know you've got a lot of work to do, and I appreciate what you've done for everybody. So well done. Uh, one of the good guys, Dr. Irfan Malik, a GP uh, in Nottingham. You may say to me that there are a lot of good guys out there, a lot of good women doing the job that they should be doing. But it seems to me there's an awful lot of people not doing that. And we want to hear your stories, please. 0344 499 1000. It's now something like 4.95 million people waiting to start treatment uh, for some kind of medical uh, problem that they need to have sorted out. That's the figure as of March 2021, the end of March. So it's probably worse now. But it's the worst since uh, records began. And it's a scandal. And we're going to talk about it for a long time here at Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, it's time to speak to our very favourite travel guru. It is, of course, the one and only Mr Simon Calder from The Independent. Simon, a very good morning to you. Oh, Mike. Yes. My goodness me. Uh, I'm I'm still disappointed that the Independent Republican Mike Graham isn't yet on the government's green list, but I'm sure it will be soon. Absolutely right. Well, listen, looking out the window here, I could do with a trip somewhere away from the doom and gloom of the London skyline, for heaven's sake. Exactly. Yes. I'm I'm about two miles away from you and it's looking uh, looking pretty grim out there. Looking lovely in Portugal, which is just as well, because it's the one place that uh, you and I, among the major European summer sun destinations will be able to go from uh, Monday onwards. Of course, um, in the news, as you've been reporting, because it may be that the Champions League final is held in the yes. fine city of Porto. And unbelievably, a uh, ferry company is saying we might well, in time for that match, have a ferry up and running from either Plymouth or Portsmouth to Porto. Really? So that can carry the fans there and uh, more to the point, um, help people who need to get to and from Portugal who don't want to fly, partly maybe because they've got a car, yes, which well, I've always find even is, is quite tricky, um, uh, especially as hand luggage. Well, it certainly is. It's not it's not an easy trip, though, is it, From uh, if, you, if, you, if you're going into Santander or Bilbao, uh, or will they go straight to Porto, do you think? Oh, no, they'll go straight to Porto. They've oh, got they? to, because otherwise, otherwise you're in trouble. Because you're you going are. through if Spain, you, you, aren't you? Yeah, you 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 even tie up at Bilbao or Santander, mm. both of them lovely cities, by the way, but both of them the amber list at the moment. Yes. Then that's ten days in self isolation for you, mm. Mike. And while some listeners would say we can't wait, I wouldn't, <laughs> frankly. No, that is definitely not worth doing. The problem yeah. with Portugal, of course, though, is having had a peak at one or two places that I thought uh, I might fancy going. Uh, the prices have gone rather sky high. You'd have to say. Yeah, well, look, um, so here's what happened. On Friday, I booked a flight because I thought it was increasingly likely Portugal might get onto the green list. So before the announcement, British Airways suddenly put on an extra flight from Heathrow to um, Faro on the Algarve coast, the main airport, really, for holidays in Portugal. Now, I thought, ah, they probably know something I don't, so I'm going to buy one, and that was 130 quid. By the end of the weekend, it was four times as much. But... As I hope I've said, you know, just just be patient. Um, uh, practice masterful inactivity. Mm. Now I know you've been doing that for your entire professional life. That's entirely but correct. But what I mean well is sit, sitting <laughs> on your hands and just thinking, oh, I'll just wait a bit. And lo and behold, um, Ryanair came in 
uh, and said, oh, 530 quid. No, we'll do it for 25 okay. from Stansted. Right. So that's what they're doing. Um, I, I haven't checked the flight recently, but I obviously traded in my BA flight mm. for a, a Ryanair one. I'm flying back from Faro as well. That one cost £9. So clearly um, there is still a little bit of scope, particularly with the airlines, Ryanair, EasyJet, British Airways, all piling capacity in. There is going to be a time when you are going to pick up some um, some some bargains. Mm. Uh, I haven't got anywhere to stay yet, but frankly, I don't think... I think you might be sleeping hotels, on the beach. Uh, well, might be, might be. wouldn't be the first time, but I, th- I think the hoteliers will be, first of all, delighted to see us. And I need to warn everybody, here we are Thursday, um, nearly lunchtime, and this is happening at dawn on Friday, oh, sorry, on Monday, and mm. we still don't know what rules the Portuguese are going to impose. Oh, really? And they might say... Um, you know, you've got to have both your jabs, you've got to have a PCR test, um, you've got to have property here or something, or yes. you've got to be related to a, a, a um, Portuguese person. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we just don't know. But my belief is that by, by tea time today, we will know a little bit more. OK, because more than likely you will need a, a, a negative test to get on a plane, won't you? And it looks as though uh, BA have now worked on a cheaper, at least a cheaper version of a test uh, that you can take for 20 quid. And also they've got a rapid, very rapid test, I think, now as well. Yeah, they, they have, yeah. I think they've got... Um, now, there's various messages coming out of um, uh, British Airways at the moment. I mean, TUI kind of set the bar very, very low mm. um, when it came out, out last week and said, right... If you're going to a green country like Portugal, then coming back into the UK, you've got to have a test before you're allowed on the plane and a PCR test after you arrive. Mm. We will do both of those for 20 quid. Now, they are subsidising it. Um, I think uh, British Airways is doing the PCR test when you come back for about 40 quid, which is good. Yeah, it's certainly better than the Is Is that one you do at the airport or one you do at home? Well, my, my uh, forgive me, I do not yet know, but there's an awful lot to be said if you're coming back for getting the test done at the airport because yes. it's just done and out of the way, no messing around. And it's important if you're coming back from a, a green country, what the test to let you get back in is, is have you got a test booked mm. and paid for? And if, if, if you can prove that, then actually, you know, if you have booked a test at home or whatever and it doesn't turn up until day three, mm. that's not the end of the world for you. You won't have to go into quarantine because you're not quarantining anyway. Whereas right. people coming back from amber countries where you have to have two tests, if they don't appear, then that that is an so if you're issue. Coming, so if you're coming back from Portugal as a green country, you are taking the test but not having to quarantine. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. You, you've got to take a test before you're allowed on any form of transport back to the UK. You then got to take a PCR test. But obviously, if that's if that's positive, um, then you immediately start self-isolating. But the assumption will be that yes. it's negative. Well, I know that this is not your newspaper, but looking at the Times today, uh, page eight, interesting story about something you and I have spoken about before. Uh, uh, there's a fears of travel chaos because there's going to be a government crackdown on some of these testing firms. Because you remember I've said to you in the past, some people have booked tests with these companies and then found that they yeah. get home and there isn't a test and there isn't even a company. Um, so now there's a worry um, that many people will be unable to get a test if a lot of these companies are now taken off the government's kind of approved list oh sure yeah look if we get back to full holiday capacity or even just a half of the normal number of people who 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 travel abroad let's Mm. say in june or maybe as late as july spain france italy 
Greece, Croatia, Cyprus, Malta are all back on the list, mm. maybe even the US, there, there won't be anything like the testing capacity required. So I suspect that the PCR requirement will be quietly dropped. Mm. It might actually be quietly dropped a little before then because it's very clunky. It's a kind of retrospective test, which from the traveller's point of view has no value. I can understand why the government wants it you know, what wants to keep the test in place because it will then know how many people are coming back and what variants they may have and so on. Yeah. Um, but I, it simply can't work at scale. And even with the, the system at the moment, you, know, you, you will have thousands of people a day coming back from Portugal, all of them needing a PCR test within two days. Yeah. And all of them actually saying, well, yeah, if it doesn't arrive in time, well, I'm, I'm not going to sort of suddenly go back into in, into self-isolation. I'll just wait for it. Yeah. Um, or if you're not clear. quarantining, presumably you, you might be, shall we say, slightly less than um, officially doing things, mightn't you? Uh, I mean, I'm not suggesting, so, but you know what people are like. I mean, if they don't feel yeah. like they have to quarantine and they say they've got a test, but then the test doesn't arrive, they might just not bother getting the test because it never came. Oh, oh sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, it would be, it, it, it's an odd thing that the government is saying our our test for you to be able to come back into Britain is that you've got the test booked. Yes. As opposed to you've got to do this and this and this and you've got to, you know, put a bond of £100 in and you're not getting that back till right. we've seen the test result yeah. or whatever. So, yeah, all a bit clunky and a bit uncertain. And because we don't know yet, we the, the green uh, the list doesn't come into effect until Monday, we won't know until then how many people are just sort of saying, oh, the test didn't arrive, oh, well, never mind. Um, uh, or indeed, test does arrive um, by post and they think, oh, do I really want to do all that? I don't think I do. And it just mm. sort of sits there on the... Uh, uh, on the chest of drawers. Yeah. For, My sense, uh, Simon, in the yes. same way as the rest of the kind of economy seems to be going at the moment, and the sort of the story this morning about masks probably being discarded in June, I think it's all just going to kind of quietly fade out, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, look, I'm absolutely on the same page as you, Mike, mm. with that. Uh, and I think all of these very, very complicated rules. So, so, I mean, I'm going off on Monday to Portugal. I have to find out what the, t the Portuguese want and comply with that. Yes. I need to set up a test for me coming back into the UK, which I won't have time to do in Portugal. So I'm having to do it at the weekend in the UK to prove that I'm healthy enough to come back from Portugal, mm. which is a bit weird because I'll still be at home in London. Right. But that's what the law says. And how do they know that you won't become unhealthy while you're in Portugal? Well, that's the point of the second test, which I have to pre-book, which I just then have to hope that it arrives. Right. And, um, yeah, I'm 100 quid worse off, and uh, that's a lot more than the plane ticket. But uh, so, so all of this stuff suggests to me that the government actually would really rather we weren't travelling in any significant numbers. And if we are going to be, because summer's coming up and look at the weather here, mm. it's they want to have a sort of little trial involving Portugal. And my guess is that in a few weeks' time, they'll say, hey, um, everyone's been to Portugal. We didn't really pick up any problems arising from that. Um, we've decided, having studied all this, uh, all these tests that um, Simon and everybody else um, paid lots of money for, that we don't need to do it anymore. Mm. And you might have a little lateral flow thing on you before you fly it into the UK. But the green list is all supposed to be about low risk countries. We're supposed to be a low risk country. So there are limits to the number of checks you can yes. put in, unless you're Australia, in which case you say, frankly, we're not expecting to see any foreign tourists except them nice New Zealanders. Mm. 
until the back end, of, so we're halfway through 2022. Mm. Yes, quite. Well, I hope very much that we'll see you on Tuesday uh, on Talk Radio, Simon, from oh. a beach somewhere not far away from Albufeira. Oh, well, exactly. I haven't, I haven't chosen my, my place in the sun yet, but I will I will strive be to be poolside for you. That would be um, terrific. Yeah, and right. um, yeah. Okay, I'll let you know how it goes. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Calder off to Portugal on Monday. Travel editor of The Independent. That's what he gets to do, you see. He gets to be the pioneer so that he can tell us what it's all like uh, and then report back to see whether it's actually worth going anywhere. Because a lot of people are saying to me, do you know what? I can't be bothered. I'm not going to take 4,000 tests, wear a mask for hours and end to go somewhere for a brief spell uh, where you might not be able to do very much anyway. Good morning, Mike. Nice to see you. <laughs> I mean, you know, I must say I've had some pretty interesting dining experiences around the world, but one, <laughs> I've never had the restaurant actually dismantled around me while I was eating a plate of very nice sardines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for being such good sport about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, tell us the story. I mean, you got a phone call out of the blue, right, from some bozo, right. some Jobsworth. <laughs> Basically, I mean, this is the ma- the major problem is that when the when the government told all the restaurants that they could open up on April the twelfth, yeah, they, they basically we all opened up outside. We all spent a lot of money making our terrace look as nice and as, and as pretty and as safe as possible. And then the, and then there's no spec, no regulation, no guidance onto what's considered legal and what's considered illegal. Right. We're all up and we're trading. We're very happy. And then five weeks later, the council come down and say, no, 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 this is all going to come down because right. this isn't the spec. I said, well, what spec? No one told us any spec. Right. And, and also, let to... me explain to people. I mean, you've got quite a small area. You've got maybe enough enough spaces for probably, what, four or five tables? Um, you've yeah, got, four or five you've got tables an that awning that comes out, and you had put up yep. some perspex, because if you didn't put the perspex up, people get rained on when it, get, when it, when it rains. 
Exactly right. Yeah. So they just literally just act as a as a kind of wind rate. You've got plenty of air that goes over the top of the perspex in between the perspex and the awning. Plenty of air that comes through from a one meter gap. Yeah. And um, anyway, regardless, it doesn't really make any difference. But the, the, the point is, is that these guys, it's like what I really worry about, Mike, is that, you know, the state has has taken on such a big role this year. Mm. And, that you know, they're talking about all these jobs creation for the government. We're going to create more jobs. We're going to bring more people in. And it's like, but the only jobs that they can create is just these kind of low level bureaucratic jobs that make life harder for me, you and everybody else yeah. out there in the country. Exactly right. Because didn't they also say to you yesterday, that if you didn't take it down, like immediately, they would come around and shut you down. Yeah. Before, yeah, yeah. before I got my spaghetti vongole. <laughs> yeah, I said, well, at least Mike, at least might get another bottle of wine in quick. I know, I know, but it's absolutely extraordinary. And I mean, so, so did you have to prove to them somehow that you'd done all that then? Yeah, well, basically, I dismantled it, took some photos, and then, and then, uh, and then I had a very long conversation with them after, after, after a good friend of mine from the Daily Mail rang them up and asked them Excellent. for a comment, and then, they, and then, and then they rang up and, <laughs> and then they rang up looking, looking to sort of mediate. And at the end of the day, Mike, I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense at all. Right. It's just, there's, no, there's no joined up thinking between government and councils and, 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 and restaurants on mm. this. There was a report that came up today that said the majority of hospitality businesses now have a cumulative debt of £2.8 billion in this country. Right. We need to let them get back to work. We need to let our pubs reopen. We need to let our hospitality businesses get back to work. We need to let our plasters and decorators get back to work and our plumbers and electricians. and Everybody just needs to get this economy pumping again. Mm. And the only way we can do it is if the government just leaves us alone and just lets right. us crack on. And what's their argument about the perspex? Are you not allowed to have any at all then? Do they want the wind to come whistling through when people are sitting there? Well, their argument is, is that they're, now they're telling that more than 50% of it has to be open. But the, the, the crazy thing is that when we were allowed to open April the 12th, none mm. of this was mentioned to us. Right. So this was all retrospective. Right. So it's like it's like you know somebody it's like you build your house, and the council say fine you can build your house there's no there's no restrictions so you go off and you build it and then they come down with a load of restrictions once it's in place. Yeah. You think well this is this is nuts this, this is, is completely this is crazy. Hopeless. It doesn't make any sense. And also on Monday right you're going to reopen anyway in a different way because you'll be inside. <laughs> like three days so, away. so I mean if they told you what the rules are for that. <laughs> <laughs> there's just no level there's just no joined up thinking like i said mike so we're like that's fine you know mm. like we don't really the, as from a small businessman's perspective like i'm sure you've got plenty of small business owners that listen to your show yeah. and i'm sure you will struggle to find one that would that would that would advocate more state intervention in their business we all want to be left alone we just want it we're all smart enough with enough common sense to, to we know what we're doing yeah let us crack on with it and, and and please just uh, and just you know and, and we'll all have a happy life. Exactly right. I mean, do they give you any kind of um, instruction as to how many people you can have in a kitchen, for example? No, nope, none. None. So no you can. I mean, so as far as they know, you can have ten people down there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As far as, exactly, this it, it just it, this, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's just not backed up by science. It's not backed up by data. We've had. Uh, I think London is now pretty much effectively COVID-free. Yeah. I don't think we've had a death in London now for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Um, and we've got plenty of ventilation. We've got good ventilation. We've Might got be a couple airflow. of people at Kensington Council should be a bit worried about uh, about about the retribution coming from you guys, though. But what about <laughs> uh, what what about the the business itself? Because it seemed to me yesterday there was more people having lunch there than there were the last time I was there, which was a couple of weeks ago. And I know the weather yeah. was a little bit nicer, but but are you seeing more people coming out now? Yeah, no, it's absolutely terrific. I mean, it really. I mean, I mean, the 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 general public have been fantastic since they built this work. They've really gone out. 
It's really made, it's, it's, they're showing the absolute best of what this country has to offer. Mm. They've gone out, they've spent money in their local places, they're going out to neighborhood places, they're going out to neighborhood pubs, they're favoring them over the big chains. Yeah. And it's been terrific. And you know what, Mike, long may it last, because that till's got to sing like a canary for a while. It yeah. has, yeah. And you've got a new place <laughs> opening up soon as well, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah, June the 21st, we're opening up a new place as well. That'll be good fun. Nice little Italian wine bar in Kensington High Splendid. Street. Yep. And uh, and I, I'm very optimistic about things. I'm very optimistic. I think that I think there's a lot of pent up demand, and I think that there's people will always want to go somewhere where they're treated well and they're and they're given good food and good service. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and that's exactly what you get there. And also, you get a little bit of entertainment. You never know what's going to happen when you go to a place. <laughs> you know, Somebody I mean, might pop out with a drill. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Well, listen, uh, James. Great to see you yesterday. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, have a good, uh, have a good afternoon. Have a good lunch session. A good dinner session. James Kiverini from Il Portico. You got to go there, by the way. It's a great restaurant. Uh, it is in Kensington, um, and he's got a couple more there along the same side of the road. Um, but unbelievable, right? Ridiculous sort of jobs worthery from these characters who seem to think that it's their God-given right to mess people around who were trying to make a living, who were trying to do well for the for the community, trying to do well for themselves, paying tax, paying for the people who work in the council, by the way, um, and all they want to do is disrupt what it is that they're trying to do. Absolutely unbelievable. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there is um, uh, an emergency meeting, I think, going on with SAGE today about the Indian variant. We don't know yet what's coming out of that. We don't know yet what will come out of that. But let's talk now to Professor David Livermore uh, to see what he thinks of the general scene uh, when it comes to COVID. Professor, very good morning. Good afternoon to you, I should say. Good afternoon. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it looks, I'd like to say with my fingers very firmly crossed that we are kind of, you know, coming out of this um, in a reasonable way, would you say? I hope so, that uh, we should be now seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with so many people vaccinated with mm. a sufficiency of herd immunity. It's time to go forwards from this uh, Farago. Yes, I think so. And Monday will be quite a big day, won't it? Because obviously we've seen the lifting of, of various restrictions over the past month or so since April the 12th. Doesn't appear to have been any kind of tail to that as far as uh, peaks of infection or anything, does it? Indeed not. But remember, we're in the spring. You wouldn't quite believe it looking out of the window, but it's a time of year respiratory viruses will go down anyway, which gives us a window to get even more people vaccinated. Yes, quite. I mean, certainly by the summer, you would expect most people who need to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. Um, and hopefully, I'm, I'm of the impression, speaking to different people in different businesses, that an awful lot of the restrictions will simply kind of just wear off, if you like, because people will, will get more confident about going out. People will be doing more business. People uh, in government are likely to be telling people to get back to work and go back to the office, right? Well, I, I sincerely hope so. But the problem is if the government says that your pub or your bar has to be closed down or is only table service or whatever, that uh, destroys your business. Mark. Yes. Well, that is the problem, isn't it? I mean, I was yesterday at a restaurant in Kensington and we just had the, uh, the, the owner of the restaurant on um, who has been operating since April the 12th, seats outside, tables outside, got a phone call from Kensington Council uh, to say if you don't take down the perspex, uh, you know, perspex screens that you've got between the seats and the, and the pavement, we're going to come and shut you down. So, I mean, there are some rather overzealous uh, council officials who are doing that kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. But I think most people, once Monday comes along uh, and they see that restaurants can reopen and if the weather's really awful, it doesn't matter because you can go inside. I think people will start to do that now. 
Well, I, I hope you're right, but I do also think that the government has terrified a very large number of people. Mm. And you, you find people who've been vaccinated, who are protected, but are still terrified to go out, yeah. which is is crazy and counterproductive. Well, it is, isn't it? And I've never quite understood why they've done that. I mean, SAGE are meeting today, right? What we know about SAGE is that an awful lot of them are not actually medical practitioners. They're behavioural scientists. They're people who have worked mm-hmm. very hard to, to, to do the scaremongering because they've thought that that's the way forward. But I'm hopeful, and I don't know about you, uh, David, but I'm hopeful that the government might take slightly less notice of the behavioural scientists going forward. I think that the government needs to take much more of a balanced view of what's coming out from SAGE, who are hyper-cautious, mm. and what's coming out from other more independent scientists, and also on what the economic and social damage yes. of the policies has been. The, the whole strategy has been too unbalanced towards lockdowns and shutting everything up. Yes, I mean, I think that's right. And I think once they do the inquiry, which was announced yesterday uh, at some point in the next year, the 2022 year, um, they might find that perhaps the lockdowns were too severe um, and they can look around at other countries and look around and see what other people did. But I mean, for example, the mask wearing in schools is now going to be over as of Monday, my understanding is, um, and which makes you ask the question as to why it was necessary in the first place. Well, Sweden has never imposed mask wearing with the single exception of rush hours on public transport and has fared no worse than lots of countries, Mm. ourselves included, that have had these mask mandates. The mask gives the wearer very little protection. Mm. At best, it may prevent some super spreader events in in crowded situations. But I I look at these people walking down the street wearing them and think, what what on earth are they thinking about? There's no benefit at all wearing such a thing outside. No, and it has a very odd effect, I think, on, on people's interaction with one another. And we've all got quite good at sort of... I, well, I suppose I have anyway. Get quite good at sort of making facial expressions with your eyes only, um, mm. because at the very beginning of the mask wearing, when you were sort of uh, wearing them in in public transport situations and all of that, you were kind of going if you you would smile at someone and then realise they couldn't actually see you smiling, so it was kind of counterproductive, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I suddenly thought, why are they not looking at me? And I then realised that you know they didn't know that I was smiling because my face was covered. And I mean, I think I mean I find it now. Um, whenever I go on public transport, because that's really about the only, I suppose I still wear them in a shop. I find it really, really kind of um, suffocating. I've just, I've had enough of it. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're extremely unpleasant things. And the sooner we can get rid of them, uh, the better. Mm. And that the benefit, as I say, except in very crowded situations, is really very dubious. The one good controlled trial that was done was the Danmask study yes. in Denmark, where they got people to volunteer to wear them very assiduously. Mm. And the, the reduction in COVID was statistically insignificant. Yes. Well, I spoke to a doctor a bit earlier on this morning, and we were talking about the, uh, the number of cases and, and how small that number now is. But when there was a large number and an awful lot of people were contracting coronavirus lots of people were contracting it in hospital where presumably um, they were wearing masks you know they might have gone into hospital for something different they caught covid while they were there and many of them died um, and so you'd have to wonder whether uh, actually the mask was 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 making any difference at all in that situation it, it's extremely questionable and needless to say there are masks and masks and no doubt some types are better than yes. others but um 
The benefit, I would say, is minimal at best. Yeah. I mean, certainly psychologically, I'm sure when I see people like you walking around outside wearing them, I do wonder what on earth they're thinking. But they obviously think that they're either protecting themselves uh, or I I suspect they think that rather than that they're protecting others, people being, you know, normally the Mm. way they are. But my view of that is if they want to keep wearing them, that's fine. Just don't make everybody else do it. Of course. Of course, it, it was, is, and in the future should be a free society on mm. such matters. Yes, quite. And, I mean, have you got any reservations at all about anything that's happening on, on Monday? Because it looks as though we will be opening cinemas. I'm not entirely sure exactly whether people are going to be wearing masks in cinemas or theatres, whether they're allowed to sit kind of, you know, every other seat or something like that. Have you got any reservations about anything like that that's happening? I, I, have, no, I have no reservations, except I shan't be going to the theatre while I've got to wear a mask. No. Um, it would rather destroy the pleasure of the event. I'm not going to pay 60 or 70 pounds for a London theatre ticket <laughs> and then sit for two or three hours wearing a well, mask. Well, do you know, that's exactly how it, I feel. It, about, that's it's, exa- it's, a fo- it's a form of suffering. It really is. I mean, it's kind of how I feel about travelling. You know, I don't really want to have to go to an airport, put a mask on as soon as I get out of the car, mm-hmm. you know, sit in an airport for two hours with a mask on, uh, get on a plane for two or three hours with a mask on, um, and then, you know, get off at the other end and have to wait in a four-hour queue to be tested before I can walk into the hotel lobby. Well, absolutely. And I think the government has to recognise that so many people now have either had the infection or an even greater number, including practically all the most vulnerable, have been vaccinated. And we're just going to have to live with this in the future. Maybe we're going to have to have tweaked vaccines each year, uh, those of us who are beyond a certain age anyway. Um we must accept this and, and live with it mm. and get back to a, a state of normality. Yes, I think that's right. But, I mean, of course, we're not alone, are we? Because whenever we talk about this, uh, you look at look, other countries in the world, some of which are not doing as well as we are because they haven't rolled out the vaccine as well as we have. But, you know, they're all kind of in a similar place, aren't they? They've all got a bit kind of doolally over the lockdowns and over kind of closing everything up. I think it was a domino effect that as one country mm. locked down, it was seen as the thing to do. And so all the dominoes went down in a row. Very few have stood out against it. Sweden, most obviously, mm. uh, and have fared no worse than ourselves or the French or, mm. or, or, or the Spanish. And then also, and most interestingly, because it's within one country, you see diversity in America. And for example, Florida mm. and South Dakota have not locked down at all during the winter. and again have fared no worse than states that have locked down so i think beyond beyond those first steps of banning major public events really crowded things then a lot of the lockdown policy the mask mandates etc have had very Mm. very little effect have you been surprised at the ferocity uh, professor of the way the government has dealt with all of this particularly people who say the sorts of things that you've just been saying about other places about masks not necessarily being particularly you know efficacious you know people have been absolutely castigated for being critical of their policy that there have been times and particularly in early january when it has been unpleasant and it hasn't been how a scientific debate should be run Uh, it was more like being a dissenter during the first world war and uh, when lord lansdowne i think it was wrote uh, published a letter in the telegraph in late 1917 saying that a negotiated peace should be sought Mm. because the pursuance of the war was causing so much damage to society uh, uh, he had a reasonable dissenting view and 
those of us who have had dissenting views on how how COVID has been managed to recognise it's an unpleasant disease, but take the view that the series of lockdowns has done huge societal damage, mm. um, were, were richly abused for a period during the Do week. you think you'll be taken more seriously once the inquiry begins? Um, I think we will be taken more seriously as the damage that the lockdowns have caused becomes more apparent. As furlough ends, as we see how many businesses are bankrupted, Mm. how many shops, how many pubs, etc., do not reopen on Monday and indeed never reopen Mm. again. At present, people have had this cushion of furlough and sense of moral virtue about what they've been doing as the wreckage starts to become clearer Mm. then i think views on lockdown will change just as during the first world war the war was popular despite the casualties through the duration of it was only in the 1920s when people began to think what was all this for Mm. what did it gain look at the terrible carnage that yes, was wrought. quite. And if finally, turn against it. Finally, prof- yeah. Finally, Professor, what would you say uh, is the is the age at which the vaccinations should go down to? Because we're hearing stories that you know the government wants to vaccinate children, which I'm not particularly comfortable with. I mean, I'm very happy for them to go down to say 18 if that's what they want to do, and if people want to have the vaccination, that's fine. But I wouldn't be that um, comfortable with them doing it below that age. Well, at 18, you were consenting adults. Right. You at very, very little risk from COVID, but you're a consenting adult to make your own decision. Mm. Below that age, then, you, then you're a child. And the evidence is that children get COVID in only a very mild form. They're not major transmitters of the disease. So they get very little benefit from the vaccine. Um, from all we know, the vaccines are, are very safe, that uh, side effects are very rare. Mm. But nevertheless, as with the blood clots, they they have emerged. So a child is running a tiny risk of some harm for the vaccine for protection, which is of no great value mm. to them because they're not going to get severely sick anyway. No. So I... On balance, I am against the vaccination of children. And what is more, if one looks worldwide, there are countries with vulnerable elderly populations who are in desperate need of those vaccines. I would rather see that vaccine go to protect the elderly in India, for example, who do need it than to be used on British children who will gain no protection. Well, or d- hardly any. And also, if they wanted, presumably, they could take the opportunity when they're a bit older to get a vaccine if it's still around. Ab- abs- absolutely. Mm. I mean, and left to themselves, no doubt they would get occasional infections with COVID over the next few years. They would build up an immunity and 60 years hence, when they hit their dotage, then uh, it would be no mm. more severe for them than a normal common cold. They no, because that's, that's the other immunologically thing. Immunologically adapt to it. Yes, because that's the other thing I worry about sometimes, whether or not as we come out of all of this, that we will be less immune, not just to COVID, but to all sorts of other things that, that we would otherwise have been immune to because we haven't been really mixing with that many people. That's that's quite possibly true, and uh, it's been noted by so many people that uh, flu had a remarkable disappearance this winter just passed. So um, 
it is a hazard that next time the flu comes around, we'll be more vulnerable. Yes, absolutely. Professor, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Professor David Livermore there, Professor of Medical Microbiology at the University of East Anglia. Uh, a very sensible man, um, as he says, a man that was uh, roundly criticised for saying some of the things that he said, um, but which are now beginning to turn out to be correct, because if mask wearing is to be done away with, then surely that means mask wearing isn't really much good. Otherwise, you'd probably be telling people to continue wearing them, wouldn't you? So if there's not really much good, then why was it brought in in the first place? Would be my question. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.